Welcome to the Consumer Rundown Podcast, your destination for the people, companies, and trends transforming today's consumer markets. We are your hosts. I'm Penny. And I'm Dimitri. On today's episode, we're joined by a special guest co-host. Evan is a tech founder and an enthusiast of luxury watches. Today, we're thrilled to have Quade Walker, co-founder of Bezel, the marketplace disrupting the pre-owned luxury watch market. Bezel is on a mission to bring transparency, security, and even a touch of fun to buying and selling pre-owned Rolexes, Pateks, and other coveted brands. We hear the story of how Quade's experience of buying his first luxury watch inspired him to launch Bezel, and how Bezel was able to attract celebrity investors such as Kevin Hart, Kyle Kuzma, and many others. Quaid will spill the tea on the future of pre-owned luxury watches market and how Bezel is changing the game. Quaid, welcome to the Consumer Rundown podcast. Thanks for having me. Excited to be here. I want to begin by taking a step back and talk about your first experience of buying a luxury watch. How did that experience inspire you to launch Bezel? I've been interested in watches my entire life, but obviously they're very expensive items and it took a while for me to be in a place where I could start collecting them myself. I was at Google prior to starting Bezel. My first bonus went towards buying a watch. Some would say that was not necessarily the most logical decision for someone out of college to be engaging with, but I was just super excited and that was the first time I got a large check landing in my bank account. So it was a very awesome opportunity to leverage that. I had collected sneakers and I loved fashion before this. And I think my expectation was using modern products like Goat and StockX and other verticalized marketplaces. My expectation going into watches was from a technology and protection perspective, there had to be a modern brand out there that felt very forward and supported this new generation of collectors. In reality, it felt very scary and I didn't really know where to begin. And I found myself lost on existing platforms and I was shopping the seller and I was reading reviews and it just didn't really feel like I had the trust I expected that I would. So that's what drove my interest in starting Bezel. Ultimately, I built an obsession over watches. I was the weirdo at work that had a second monitor that focused on the watch market and I got very obsessed with these things. And it was this cool unlock that I could buy them intelligently. They held value in a really thoughtful way. They were super expressive and fun and I can wear them around, but I had a lot of liquidity in them and I could train in and out of them. And there just wasn't really an asset class that excited me that way. So it was this juxtaposition of me being super passionate about the space, but also at the same time, feeling like the space didn't optimize itself for first-time watch buyers. So that's how Bezel was born. And the way that we think about Bezel differently is you know, building out a, a true technology platform and obsessing over authentication. So we have just north of $415 million in watches in the platform today. You can theoretically find anything that you want on the platform. We have a concierge in-house that's available to every customer to help you narrow it down should you want to talk to someone on the phone and jam on watch collecting thoughts and things like that. But the core differentiator is every time a watch is sold, it's overnighted to us first. We authenticate everything in-house and make sure it's working the way that it should. It has all factory parts. Everything is operating the way it should be expected. It hasn't been reported stolen. Just basically all the checks that I wanted as a core collector and I didn't feel like I had on the existing players. We got this really fun opportunity to build the product that ultimately we wanted when we started. But that's how I came about it from the beginning. That's a great story. Do you still have that first watch? The first watch I ever bought was a Rolex Submariner Hulk. I grew up surfing and I spend a lot of time in the water and I love like very functional tool watches. And I just thought as a first watch, 
you shouldn't take yourself seriously. And so I like that it was all green and fun and playful that way. And I've traded a ton of watches in and out of my collections, but that is one of those that will forever remain just because that's the one that got it all started. That's awesome, Quaid. From Google going into your venture at Bezel, obviously it is a passion project, but it's a huge endeavor. You're going into a space that has marketplaces for watches. They already have an ecosystem with authorized dealers. There's already an established process, especially for people buying such a luxury item. What made you think that this was a venture to go into? And what about your experiences, especially going from corporate into the startup world, made you think that you could execute? Yeah, it's a great question. It's a very big question. I think the thing that made me ultimately do it was my expectations were not met as a customer that had the means to buy these things, but ultimately didn't feel comfortable. And I think that's the fun opportunity if you are building a product. Like I was a product person that happened to love watches. If you have a customer that really wants something, but they're really nervous and it's large, it's oftentimes the largest purchase they've ever made. It, it creates this really awesome opportunity where you can delight them. Like you can go above and beyond to build out a product that feels so different than anything else they've been leveraging in the past and turns their apprehension into excitement and then ultimately loyalty. And that was the unlock that I had as a product person where I just saw a really opportunity just to sell really cool things and build a product that did that justice. I think generally from an industry perspective, and it makes sense like from an economic side, a lot of the existing players in the industry at large optimizes for the existing collector, like the whales out there. And that makes sense because if there's going to be someone that's going to be spending six plus figures a year on your marketplace or your inventory seller, whatever you are, it makes sense for you to optimize for them. I think our bet was if we challenge ourselves to build the best possible product to buy your first watch, you lower the barrier of entry of creating a new class of sellers that ultimately become those whales. So like you're solidifying your place in the future of the industry. And then it also challenges you to build out the most thoughtful process to make people feel trusted. If you're able to convince someone to feel comfortable and they've never bought a watch before, you're challenging yourself to stack up and build the best product for everyone, assuming you have the inventory. So we were able to do that and scale the inventory very swiftly. I think I was shocked going into it, how big the market actually was. It's almost twice the size of this sneaker market around a $26 billion a year industry, just in the secondary market alone. So I think that was staggering to me as well to think about the opportunity space ahead. If you look at sneakers, like you have StockX and Goat, they're both multi-billion dollar businesses. In the watch space, it felt a lot like what the sneaker space felt like from a market penetration perspective eight to 10 years ago. It felt like we could truly innovate and create our own space in the industry. And then ultimately we could protect a ton of customers and delight them along the way. And that's the fun part and why I think watches are so romanticized and addictive. We have customers that are buying these things and they're celebrating the births of their new children. They're celebrating birthdays. They're giving it to their spouse for their wedding. Like there's all this storytelling and really exciting stuff that happens. And as a product person, that's like the dream. I get to sell really expensive emotional objects make people feel comfortable by building better products around them and then connect folks over them to have magical moments in their lives. I get really excited to come to work every day because of it. And that's fantastic. You're talking a lot about the 
first watch that people buy. And obviously going onto your website and looking at your inventory, some would argue that the watches, maybe not the majority of them, but you do see a lot of watches that are on people's grail list, right? The Royal Oaks, the Nautiluses, right? For the listeners who don't understand these models, think Audemars Piguet and, you know, Patek Philippe, very, very ultra luxe and some would say out of reach timepieces. Do you think that the platform is going to be built and going to focus on first-time buyers who may shop around the five, ten, fifteen thousand dollar range? Or is there a potential to go upstream, capture these whales and really show them, hey, with technology, we can really service you better? than your authorized dealers, than these people who you have to go in person to experience more of a concierge service rather than using technology for a more efficient play? It's a great question. I think the reason we started this business is because I always love to say this, like my superpower in this industry is that I did not come from this industry. We have like our head of watch ops, his name is Ryan Chong. He used to run private sales at Sotheby's. We have a lot of ex-Sotheby's, ex-Christie's, really deep watch knowledge. We have some of the largest dealers in the US on our cap table. We have some really massive names in the industry as investors. And that allowed us to substantiate the trust and credibility that we need to, to pull this off. I think the way that I thought going into this was from a procedural perspective and a product perspective, building out the best place for you to buy your first watch. That meant trust, that meant authenticity, that meant handholding, that meant luxury, right? Like, And that was the initial challenge. And then the inventory scales to support the entire market. So our average order value is $12,000. We sell the exact split you're describing, right? If, you know, if arbitrary number, let's say we sell 10 watches today, the way it'll split down is, you know, three or four of them are sub $15,000. And a few of them are fifteen to thirty thousand dollars, and then one or two of them are eighty-five thousand plus. I think, right? So we've been able to prove that out. Obviously, a lot of our transactions are sub ten thousand dollars, and and we love those folks. Our bet is, if you're starting your collection and you buy with Ezel, you will continue to keep purchasing from us. One of the facts that we always love to talk about is thirty percent of our sales last year were repeat buyers. So these are folks that enter the ecosystem, they have an awesome experience. And then ultimately our hope is that once you have a chance to experience the trust that we're able to provide for you, you stop looking elsewhere and you go to your concierge or you open up the Bezel app and we help find that out. On the top end, you said something really interesting about, I think the expectation of, of really expensive watches is I need to go to a brick and mortar store. I need to see these things and I need to feel those things. What we try to do is if you break it down on like a first principles basis and you think about why people go to brick and mortar stores to see these things, like what is the environment that they're trying to create? Is it the fact that you can see them? Is it the fact that you get to meet the person that's going to handle them? And you have like a human interaction. Is it the fact that it is in fact a physical space that you can enter? Like what are these things that, that require? And we try to break it down on, on like that level and try to recreate them digitally as much as possible. So that's the whole push behind the concierge and the fact that we're readily available to do that. Like, if we have a very, very high-end watch that we're selling to a customer, we'll fly that watch out to you and we will sit down and talk to you about this watch. It's not necessarily in a brick and mortar space, but we have partnerships with a bunch of amazing venues and we'll meet you at an amazing venue near you 
and show you the watch. The goal is to challenge what has been done in the past without losing the magic of why that existed. So breaking it down at a principled level, stealing the niceties of that, but then making it work in a scalable, technologically forward way. And so I wouldn't say that we've like cracked the nut entirely yet, but we're seeing the numbers change meaningfully. We sold a Tiffany Nautilus for seven figures in Q4, right? That's a massive watch. We launched in June of 22. So we had existed from a brand perspective to the world for a year and a half at that period of time. So it's really awesome to achieve that degree of brand credibility in that short period of time. And we're still very much, in my opinion, the early days and what we're trying to achieve. So the goal is to keep chipping away at that and, and sell the bigger pieces as well as supporting the new collectors. If I held a Tiffany Nautilus on my hand, especially in your position, I don't know if that would have stayed alive in the inventory. <laughs> <laughs> it's crazy. It's, it's a really fun process where, similar to what you're describing, I entered the space as a massive enthusiast. And I had a few watches that I was able to collect because of the affordances of my last job. And like I, I got to play the game and buy some watches. But the level of watches that I get to see every day now is crazy. And I'm like a kid in a candy store and it, it still hasn't faded away. I've been doing this long enough at this period in time where you would think seeing these cool things starts to feel more commonplace, but I still lose my mind. Like these watches come in and we get deliveries every day. And all I want to do is like drop everything I'm doing and like look at the watches that came in and make sure they're amazing. And so it's just, it's such a fun process. And so that's the fun passion. And I think we've been able to carry that through in the way that we hire. Like a lot of the folks that work here are obviously obsessed with watches and we're able to create this fun opportunity where you're working for a technology business. You know, we grew 6X year over year in Q4. It's like fast growth tech numbers, but we're also selling watches. And for people that are obsessed with watches, it's just like a really fun place to work. It sounds like you're in a fantastic position where your passion for watches aligns perfectly with your entrepreneurial direction. It's great to hear that the enthusiasm you had when you first started building hasn't diminished. Before we do a deeper dive into the business model, you mentioned that there are a number of watches that you own. Is there one that stands out for you? The Hulk to me is the most significant watch in my collection because it was the first one and it is the one that catalyzed everything. I was a designer at Google before I was working here. So I, I designed all of our core product at Bezel and all of the mocks for the product and everything used the Hulk. And it just became this foundation piece for this chapter of my life that I was taking on. Even though I owned other watches that period of time, like nothing represents the same degree of relationship I have with watches. Cause I think that was very much like the diving off point. I think bezel affords to the modern collector that didn't exist before. If you build out a platform that can truly become like peer to peer exchange and, and allows for liquidity for retail sellers, it allows for this new type of ownership where I can own more watches than I typically normally could have because I can trade in and out of them and I can sell my watches and I can then fill my collection with something else and things like that. But the one watch that will never leave is the Hulk for sure. That's awesome. It's fascinating to hear the personal and professional significance the Hulk watch holds for you. You mentioned that the market size of the watch resale market is about 26 billion. Give us the lay of the land. Who are the big players and what's their market share? I think 10.5 billion of that 26 billion around ballpark is online sales. So it's still, as you guys mentioned, like a lot of brick and mortar shops that are selling a lot of the secondary market. That's changing very quickly. I think the online portion of the secondary market is growing like 16%. 
As far as like the players in the secondary market, like there's eBay is, I believe, the largest seller of watches in the US. Chrono 24 is obviously a big player. And then there's like the inventory sellers of the world, like the watch boxes and, and things like that. But that's the main. And then like obviously Hodinkee is a big name in the editorial side of, of the world. It's interesting to note the dynamics of the watch market. I'm not surprised that a significant portion still being driven by brick and mortar shops, but I see the rapid growth of online sales indicate a shifting trend in consumer behavior and preferences that we're seeing across other consumer categories. So when I look around the industry, I see well-established resellers like the Real Real and ThreadUp face significant profitability challenges despite their long presence. What lessons have you learned from their experiences and how are you differentiating yourself to achieve growth and profitability? Yeah, it's a great question. It's not true of every industry, but it is certainly true of watches and there are certainly other collectible categories. Like watches are not entirely unique in that sense, but I think verticalization wins here. And what I mean by that is the industry from a collector base is so passionate and particularly good at sniffing out things that feel disingenuine to the space. And I think when you're spending $12,000 online from something, you want to buy from a true expert in that. And so our obsession is watches and watches only, and we have no distractions. We want to build the best product. We want to have the best inventory. We want to have the best prices. We want to have the best folks working here. And I think the way that presents itself is it allows us or it affords us a ton of efficiencies that I don't think the generalist marketplaces have if they try to explore a lot of these categories. There are certainly transferable categories. Like I think StockX and Goda have proven this out in the sense that we'll buy a pair of sneakers and I maybe will also buy an awesome you know, hoodie or something to match the sneakers. And that's like a transferable purchase. Watches, I think, live in its island alone a bit. And so what we focus on is just being laser focused on the watch aspect there. And it allows us to do a lot of really interesting things from a CAC perspective, from a profitability perspective. It also allows us to be asset light. So like a lot of our competitors in the space take on inventory. I think a lot of folks thought to take on inventory, especially we raised our first round in 2021. The market was up and to the right. Macro was ripping. It made sense to take on inventory at that point in time because you've got more of a margin perspective there. Our bet was that's not going to sustain itself. Asset light is the way to, to scale the numbers that we want to scale, but do it in a way that is operationally efficient, but then leverage products and technology to make sure that we're offering the same degree of trust, care, and, and execution. So I think that's what we've been able to leverage on the positive end is we sell very expensive items. Our CAC from an inventory benchmarking perspective is quite low. And then we're able to get people to buy multiple things, multiple of these because they trust us. And, and we obsess over not selling one incremental watch. We obsess over building a relationship with a customer for life. And the economics just work themselves out as they go on because of the scale of the items that we are selling. This makes a lot of sense. As you're going through this, it's very clear that your strategic choices are rooted in a deep understanding of the industry and a commitment to providing an exceptional experience for your sellers and buyers. Switching gears, I want to talk business models. Many e-commerce marketplaces initially opt for a commission-based revenue model. However, I've observed a trend towards platforms adding advertising features over time. We're seeing this at Amazon and Instacart. Advertising is now the growth engine for these marketplaces. As you look ahead, do you see yourself diversifying the revenue stream 
beyond commissions through advertising or other revenue streams? There's certainly ancillary revenue streams that exist in the watch space. None of them, on our perspective, are advertising. The way that we think about it, though, is there's a lot of services that we can provide around ownership of a watch. We have an extended warranty product that we have launched and we've had great success with. We have the concept of insurance, which is something that we currently use a, a partnership with and, and we're building out internally, which is super exciting. There's just a lot of really awesome tools that we can build on the seller side. There's a lot of really cool stuff to do in the industry that certainly diversifies the revenue and changes it from being entirely contingent on the commission-based model. But yeah, the goal is to just like every aspect that we are focusing on or every part of the business that we are building needs to make the core buying experience feel better. And if something detracts from that, it's just not something we're interested in. Our promise to our buyers is that we are going to obsess over you having an awesome time buying a watch. And if there's some way that we can enhance that by providing value to you, and then there's a way to make more money doing that sounds great. But our principal concern is making you feel like you are supported and that you would like to transact with us again, should you want to buy another watch. And that's our core belief. And there's a ton of ways that we can get really, really good at that that I'm less worried about trying to pick up as many pennies as we can, if that makes sense. Yeah, it makes sense. You know, Quaid, you mentioned X-Growth. You mentioned having a Tiffany Nautilus seven-figure watch come through your doors. A lot of milestone successes. But like every startup, it comes from very humble beginnings. It comes from selling a dream. It comes from how do we get that first customer through the door? Can you talk a bit about maybe some of the barriers of your journey, some of these really tough conversations that you've had to have in order to get the first customer, the second customer, and even the 20th and the 50th to the point where, hey, it's actually a marketplace rather than just these one-on-one -on -one conversations? Absolutely. And, and I love to say this, but I, I think I was naive to it. And I think a lot of folks are like starting a business is very challenging and a decade long commitment that you're making to a problem. And if you're obsessed with that problem and solving that problem, and that is what's motivating you to do this, then I, I think you're in a very good place. But if you're doing it for the wrong reasons, if you're doing it to make money, I think it's a very short path. And so luckily I'm just obsessed with watches and it became like a really exciting passion. So even any incremental success and in even the beginning was, I felt like massive. And so that was super exciting. It's really challenging though. It's a chicken and egg problem of a two-sided marketplace where sellers don't want to be in the platform if there's no buyers and buyers don't want to be in the platform unless there's inventory, right? So what we went on and did in the early days was pitched a lot of the largest dealers in the US and said, we're going to give you a better experience for selling watches. It's going to be more transparent. We'll give you better payout rates and we'll give you a better payout timeline. And we're going to build a, a moat around the buy side that feels more trusted, better brand, like really focused on what we think buyers actually care about. And we went out, we got a lot of the big dealers in the US as investors, actually. And that gave us an unfair advantage in catalyzing supply in the early days. So that allowed us to scale that out. They were just listing their inventory on our platform, but we weren't asking for it to be exclusive or anything like that. It was like, please list us up here and we'll go out and sell it, right? Then on the buy side, 
we're selling $12,000 items on average, right? It takes a while to build the brand out there to get someone comfortable with that. I think the cool thing that we were able to do to augment that is we got a lot of massive collectors that have like name brands around collecting on our cap table so that we were able to accelerate that. And so I, I love to talk about fundraising as a mechanism to unlock solutions to challenges you're having as a business. Like it is not just capital. So we went out and we raised from Kevin Hart and John Legend and Jay Balvin and Steve Aoki and Kyle Kuzma and all these amazing collectors that had insane brands themselves. And that allowed us to get this like catalyst of an endorsement from them where it's, oh, this is where Kevin Hart talks about watches. or This is where Kyle Kuzma buys his watches. I can trust that. And that gave us the lift that we needed to get the wheel moving down the hill so it could start spinning on its own. And that was the way that we scaled from the beginning. It took us a really long time. Like the other thing is our thesis from the beginning was first time watch buyers are under addressed. And so we need to build a product that addresses them and scale the inventory that addresses everyone. I don't think we got credit for that until the brand was large enough that we were able to be really trusted. And then the first time watch buyers read the user education that we were writing, they read the editorial stuff and they finally dove in. And, and then now the flywheel spins quite fast. But I think that was the struggle. And we talk about it all the time in the office, we have a button that whoever sells a watch or if a sale happens, we press the button and it's a sale button. It's hilarious because it's like the song that goes like sale. So it plays like the clip from that song and it has it. It's a ridiculous startup <laughs> thing, but that's what we do. In the early days, like that happened not very often. And you're sitting here and you're like, okay, we're not selling that many watches. We're certainly not in a place where like, I feel like we're growing the way that we should. And then the first press about the business happens. The first great referral happens. The first great review happens. The first podcast. And it starts to build momentum. And then all of a sudden, there's not a moment where you're not hearing that button happen in the office. And that's super exciting to think back. So it feels like forever ago when we were not selling very many watches because we were selling so many now. But you're totally right that it was not linear growth. It was not a hockey stick always. There was a lot of moments where we were like, dude, I got to call everyone I know and convince them to buy a watch right now. I don't know how we're going to get this thing moving. I guess for anyone that's listening that is building a marketplace, some of our investors have built the largest marketplaces in the world. And they all have these same conversations where the first year, two years, six, whatever the period is, where they're like, I don't know if this is going to work. We can't get this wheel to spin, but it is crazy how fast the wheel can spin once you get it spinning. The marginal returns like increase meaningfully and you get compounding growth as you get more people in the system and they become evangelists and things like that. So that's very true of our system. And it was not like we raised our round, we announced it, and all of a sudden we're the business that we are today. It's been a very gradual process and it's been fun. I wouldn't trade it, but it's been a, a learning process as well. Absolutely. Let's talk a bit more about the fundraising process. Obviously, everyone knows that you got to go raise money. It's how you establish velocity and growth. Can you talk a bit more about your fundraising process, specifically around some highlights, lowlights, and especially for you, you talked about finding the right investors and how finding the right investors really empowered you to do more as a company. I think when you're fundraising, there's a trap to fall in on both sides of the extremes of the spectrum. 
And they're both not good. What I mean by that is like one side of the extreme is I want cash and I want to move. And I think thinking about these moments from a fundraising perspective in a way that is not strategic, you're losing growth opportunities and you're not making the best chess move there. Alternative to that on the extreme though, is that you're so obsessed over brand that like you only want to raise from tier ones and you only want to build that out. And that's like largely an ego thing. And I, I fell into that too. I was like, I want like the most name brand investors and that's what I want. But there are like certainly investors out there that are right from a previous operator experience, from a, from like a portfolio company perspective, from a thesis perspective for each individual business and identifying who those investors are, I think is the most important way to focus. And thinking about what you want to achieve with the money that you are raising and then how you can leverage the people that are writing you checks to help you get there faster. So for us, it didn't make enough sense for us to go raise our whole round from some tier one venture firm. It made sense for us to focus on really, really strong seed firms that have a legacy in helping businesses go zero to one, specifically on the marketplace side. And like, a lot of previous operators, so when shit hits the fan, I have people to call to be like, what did you do when you were here? And then we knew that brand was really important and we were selling really expensive things. If you scan across the secondary market, there's not a lot of brands out there. The staggering fact for us was 61% of the pre-owned watch market from a request perspective are millennial and Gen Z buyers. It's like way younger than you would expect. So our thesis was, who do these people care about? And these buyers care about what their favorite collectors are wearing. So how do we leverage some unfair advantage to get their attention by getting capital selectively from the right folks? And so that was the way that we thought about it. And there's never been an easy fundraise in the history of fundraises. There's those weird moments you read about it in TechCrunch and someone goes number one on the app store and then they're lobbed term sheets that are way above the valuation from a market perspective for their business. And it's always a grind and it's a grind in both directions. It's a grind because you're trying to get someone to write the first check. And then as soon as someone gives you the first terms, then it's a grind to figure out how you're going to fit the composition of the round that you want, which is an amazing problem to have, but it's still a problem and it's super stressful. I think having good partners and good early angels is super important. Like our first checks came in from folks that are previous operators. I had a pitch deck and like a rough idea of what I wanted to do here. And I had a few folks that I've kept in my circle from the very beginning. And they just lobbed checks in before I even like knew I was raising money. And they were the ones that like quarterbacked this entire process for me. And I don't know what I would have done without them. I also have two incredible co-founders. I don't know what I would have done without them through the process. So I think it's a combination of, of having like a support network that lets you think clearly through the process and be strategic about the decisions that you are making. The downside of all this for us was we raised our first round in 2021, August of 21. The market was crazy. Valuations were crazy. The standard line of thinking at that point in time was you raise money so you can last for 18 months and then give yourself six months of runway and you go raise your next round, right? And the goalposts from a requirement perspective to go raise the next round were very legitimate and it felt very right. And then the market changed. We were first-time founders. We didn't really think about that. And we ended up getting like the round that we wanted to get done next. But I think I was so 
wedded to the valuation multiples I thought about in the previous round that it felt odd doing the next round because you're like, wait, we've blown past what we thought we would blow past. Why are we not raising at what we thought we would raise at? And I think my learning lesson in talking to a lot of other operators is like you are building this business to be the multi-billion dollar opportunity you want it to be in five plus years, 10 years. You are not building the business so that you can have these like micro success moments per round and your ego gets a boost and you feel like you're running a valuable business. It's like being very long-term focused in everything that we are doing and obsessing over how close or far, or far are we from the trajectory we need to be on? Not like what does each individual milestone feel like as a check engine light or not? It's all like investing. If you love a business, you buy stock in it and you forget about it. Like you're long that business. If you're short a business, that's when I think you run into trouble. And I think the same thing happens in venture. I think those are my learning lessons. And if you're building a fundamentally strong business, regardless of market conditions, you're building a fundamentally strong business and you will eventually be you know, rewarded for that. Let's talk about market conditions. If I look at the current state of the luxury watch resale market, the trend that stands out the most is the decline in the average resale price. Since March, 2022, the average price on the secondary market has declined close to 40%. Has that been good or bad for business? It's a great question. And so obviously it is not a counter-cyclical market, right? Like, but it, it is certainly less cyclical than a non-luxury category. Comparatively to other consumer markets, the watch market has been doing better, but it is still down 30, 40, 50%, depending on the model from when we first raised around or from the peak in 22. It's been awesome for us because two things happen. One, if we're trying to catalyze supply, we're able to provide more value for sellers in a market that is going down because they want to sell their watches faster. In a market where they can buy a watch for $10,000 and sell it for $12,000 in a week, they don't need as much help doing that because demand is so high. In a market that is going down, they need more help. So it allowed us to insert ourselves into the seller's process and actually provide value that made them stick around as users. So that was super exciting and that helped us grow on that side. The second reason is... I think the more established competitors in our space used the growth opportunity of the market to take on more inventory and try to scale their margins. And I don't blame them for that. It is the logical thing to do in that market. And you can get greedy really fast and you end up trying to figure out where that line is. It's very hard to time that correctly. And a lot of those businesses ended up taking on too much inventory, hiring too many folks to focus on it. And then it put them into more of like a survival mode during the downturn. Our bet from the beginning was asset light, asset light, asset light. We were not exposed from an inventory perspective. So all that happened was we got more inventory and the folks that were looking at a steel ceramic Daytona at $55,000 saying they want that watch saw it drop to $30,000 and they said, oh shit, I still want that watch and now I can afford it. Or... I'm buying the dip. I'm buying an asset that is down and, and actually increased our sales. So the downturn has been oddly beneficial to our business because of our timing and our positioning. But it would be silly for me to say that if the market wasn't ripping again, we would be making more money too. Building on that, considering your customer base, what proportion are motivated by potential of an increase in value versus those driven by a genuine passion for luxury watches? 
It's certainly a mix, obviously a massive overlap. Like I think even the folks that are evaluating it as an asset class, for the most part, are doing so because they're looking for a justification to collect the thing they already wanted to collect. It's a lot easier for me to buy the thing I want if it at least maintains its value. I still want it though. The speculators in the market that are just buying watches as an asset class, I think that's the, the vast minority. Like that's not, those are not the, the folks that are dominating the market. Our take on this is, is we give you the tools to understand the value of all the watches. There are certainly better buys than others. And our job is to inform you of that. So if you're coming in here saying, I want a Royal Oak, we'll tell you that it's, the market's been soft lately. And you can do with that information what you'd like. If you think that that's cool because you're getting a good entry point into a piece that you want, amazing. I just bought one you know, the other week because of that, because I want the thing and the price is nice. So I, I own it now. If you're buying that because you think it's going to go back up, like that's not something that we ever market. At, like Our job is not to give investment advice. Our job is to give you all the facts about the watch and the, how the price has changed. And then ultimately advocate that you buy what you like. And you could buy a watch that you love and it gets discontinued this year and it shoots up in value and like you scored and that's awesome. But I don't necessarily think that we oftentimes sit here and say, there's speculation that the Pepsi is going to get discontinued this year. Everyone who's ever looked at a watch, you guys should buy a Pepsi because we want to make money. I think that's very dangerous. And so our job is to be a resource, but we're not your broker or your financial advisor here. Yeah, that makes sense. How do you think you need to evolve in the next 12 to 18 months to keep growing? Yeah, I think about last year for us is very much like foundation building, right? So playing the same game as a lot of our competitors have played, but doing so with like more technologically forward approach and obviously with authentication at center and building a brand around that. That allowed us to create an awesome experience for a lot of buyers and obsess over retaining them and continuing to do that. I think about the next year for us as the moments when we can really start innovating from a technological perspective on top of the product that we've already built. So we have auctions dropping, which is super exciting, new product, does a lot of really cool stuff for the business. And it's just so fun. We've been running mock auctions internally for the last month, and I've been losing sleep because I'm trying to win watches that don't even really exist, but I just want to win them and I feel like I need to. So I think that's super fun and it'll be a really awesome gamified system. If you think about auctions, there's a really cool opportunity for liquidity for sellers. And there's also a cool opportunity for buyers to get great deals. And the industry hasn't changed a ton. So we're super excited about that. There's a ton of amazing product features that we are adding over the next year that I think will just continue to change the game in a really thoughtful way. So without saying too much, that's the way that we're thinking about it. And I'm just super excited about what the year has for us. Are you focusing on adding features for the buyers or the sellers? Our promise to both sides is that we're going to do everything we can to give them the best experience possible. And that is an incredibly iterative process. We started bringing sellers to the table because we wanted to hear what they needed. We built the first permutation of bezel and it's constantly iterating and changing. The seller side is a huge focus for us this year and making sure that they have the technology they need to run their business as efficiently as they can. And we feel like we're in a really unique position here where we have the wedge that is the marketplace, but we also have the only team in watches that is a bunch of engineers from Google and Amazon and other really competitive larger startups in the same room with 
folks with decades of industry experience in the watch space and a ton of sellers that we're talking about all the time and a ton of buyers we're talking about all the time. So the roadmap is quite rich and vast. So there's a lot that we will be doing on both sides this year. Talking about what you guys are doing with sellers, obviously not going into detail to reveal too much. How do you guys focus and prioritize? You said that you have sellers at the table and they're essentially your design partners, but I'd imagine there's a point where someone says, hey, I want this feature, I want this attribute. And even though they might be a player in the space and you might have this relationship with them, there is a chance that you could be building for a survey of one rather than the many. Yeah, that's a great question. We run user research studies on the buy side as well all the time. And it's always a question of what is the sample size? Does this cover the entire user base? I'll walk into the office sometimes and I'm like, I really want this feature, but I'm not building this product just for me. We have to go out and test these assumptions. The cool thing about the sellers is that their hit rate on being right is quite high. And a lot of them have the same process. A lot of them are running very similar businesses. And so a lot of the problems they feel are widespread. And we don't take it at face value, though. We have a conversation with them. And then we have a bunch of these sellers that we talk to. And we like do a ton of research before we make any meaningful decision. A lot of that is like backed up and thought through. And then I think from a principled perspective, what we are trying to do is build out the most trusted place for you to easily buy and sell watches. And if we are building a feature that does not promote that mission, it is a distraction, right? And that can mean a number of things. That can mean that like we're just doing that because we're like chasing a few extra dollars, then we shouldn't be doing that. If we're doing something because we're going to build this experience for sellers because it's actually going to make the inventory update faster, which transitively is also going to give us better inventory, which is going to give better prices to as a buyer, which is going to make you have a better experience, then we should do it. Let's hammer yes on that button, right? And so it's a combination of doing the research to validate the assumptions that we are making and the feedback we are getting with how does it overlay with what I was talking about before. It's like, what is this long-term trajectory? Like we know where we want to be in 2028, right? Like we know what the long-term vision of this product is. Does this get us there or is it like deviating to some path that goes to some other area that we're not comfortable understanding yet? And I think that's how you stay focused from a team and a focus perspective. It's important because we are not a massive team. We're still a scrappy startup that is obsessed with building the right thing, but we have to be very intentional about our resourcing and our focus and, and how we frame that to customers. Great. Talking about the team, I think you mentioned that you have two other co-founders. Is that correct? Yep. So with three of you in total, how does that dynamic help the business? How does that dynamic sometimes hinder progress just because there's more cooks in the kitchen? And has there ever been a moment where it has really just outshined everything where you were like, wow, without the co-founder status or without the third co-founder, none of this would have been possible? Yeah, I don't think there's a single day that goes by that I'm not like, I couldn't do this without these guys. It sounds cliche and stupid, but I, I think the split that we have is absolutely perfect. There's not a single redundancy and there's not something that's left uncovered. And I would never advocate for folks to have extra co-founders 
that didn't provide the same value. One of our smartest advisors in the very beginning, and I, I believe this is like derived from like a Paul Graham essay, but his feedback was, hey guys, like if you're starting this business and you are co-founders, like you guys are splitting this three ways, right? You guys all have equal ownership. And our answer was like, yeah, absolutely. And, and his feedback was like, yeah, good. If you don't have an equal split here, like that's not your co-founder. That's someone that's providing value. But like when you need to be up at three in the morning because you're shipping auctions tomorrow and you all need to be at the table delivering on this, you need to make sure you guys are all equitable. And I just am very lucky that I'm working with two of the hardest working, smartest people I've ever met in my life. And they happen to be my co-founders. And the way that our skill set is spread is very different. My background is in technology, sure, but more on like the design and product side of the coin. I obsess over building out the best product. I obsess over brand. I obsess over like what the customer feels. Daryl's my second co-founder. He is our CTO. Him and I started a business in the past together. He was at Google as well. I've never seen someone on the engineering side obsess over product the way that he does. And so the nature of our business is that we're selling luxury items and we need to have a product that feels emphatically different. He's just like an absolute monster. And then Chase is our third co-founder. Chase and I grew up together. Chase is the hardest working person I've ever met in my life. He has a finance background. It's like an ops background. And so he handles all of the ops, all of the finance, like all of that aspect of the business. And I'm a firm believer in everything that I do, understanding my skill set and recognizing I'm very good at a certain number of things. It would be very silly and a disservice to the business if I was pretending to be good at things that I was not. So I'd rather surround myself with people that are way better at the things that I'm bad at so that from a coverage perspective, we're really good at everything. And the coolest part in raising money is then you can find the operators and the folks that fill in the little gaps you guys have between each other as you grow into those gaps as founders yourself. I couldn't imagine doing this business without these guys. And it's really awesome. And then from the team generally, we're a small but mighty team. And I think if you have good founders, you're able to build good first hires underneath those founders that then build good employees underneath those first hires and being very intentional about making sure everyone on this team is an absolute killer and super excited about what they're building. And we've been really, really lucky that we've been able to scale that intentionally. And I am just really fired up to come to the office because I'm super excited to work with who I'm working with. Awesome to hear. One final question. And we asked this question from every single person we talked to on the podcast. Is there a principle that defines you either professionally or personally? The big question. I think the first thing that comes to mind, and I imagine if you asked me this question 10 times, I would maybe give you the same answer seven of those times. But my goal is just to be genuine in everything that I am doing. I like the word genuine because it's a combination of being honest, but also being very real to the space that you are in and the goals that you have and, and the outcomes that you want to achieve. My genuine approach to this is that I was not a watch person. I did not come from the watch industry. I was a collector and I empathize with collectors. And so understanding that genuinely, I built a team of folks that are watch experts that bring that side to the table and that understand the industry in ways that I do not. And our outcome from a product perspective is a product that feels genuine to the collector base that exists. That's the way that I think about it. And I just challenge myself to be thought of that way in, in everything that I'm doing. Well, Quaid, it was great to meet you. It's been a great conversation. It's great to learn more about you and about Bezel. Awesome. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. Yeah, it was wonderful talking to you, man. Great meeting you. Likewise.
This concludes our interview with Quade Walker from Bezel. Thank you for joining. Please subscribe for more episodes of the Consumer Rundown podcast and visit us at consumerrundown.com. See you next time.